0: Let's get rolling. We're going to get started today. Now, last week, we, we've been talking about these festivals, right? I'm just going to show this list again, just so we're on the same page here. Um, these we, We've gone through all seven. There are seven Levitical feasts that the Jewish people celebrate. You've got your spring ones. You've got your fall ones, okay? Now, the spring ones, we've showed from a prophetic standpoint how Jesus fulfilled those in his first coming. The fall ones, we talked about how he's going to fulfill when he returns, and so I know there's a lot of information. All of these are online. You can download them on iTunes. You can get them right to your phone, uh, whatever you want to do there. If you want to go back and listen to this, so you kind of understand what's going on, because we took a lot of time with these. I mean, uh, which is in typical fashion with me. I plan these things out for like 10 weeks and then, you know, all summer we're still not done. But here we are. We're almost there. So I wanted to get into these because I wanted to show you the prophetic nature of these things because they're important. Because we're going into that time. The Feast of Trumpets starts this week. I believe it is the 21st or 22nd, something like that. Remember, the Feast of Trumpets is the day and hour of which no one knows. It's that when they look to the sky and they see that new moon, and then they will go and it takes two witnesses, and then they will blow the trumpets announcing the commencement of the Feast of Trumpets. That one's coming up, and we've talked about, and we've kind of intermingled these different signs in the heavens type things, showing how these things are important, it's, and we just need to understand these things. Am I missing something? Okay. Well, people are having a good time. I'm glad. It's one of those things you see people laughing, you're like, oh, is your fly down, or what's, what's going on? Okay. I'm going to take your word for it and trust y'all. There's nobody behind me, right? Okay. All right. I mean, I'm used to being laughed at. I just want to be involved with it. That's all it is. Okay. So anyway, so we've talked about these things. And then last week we got into the Feast of Purim. And, and understanding what that is, that's not one of the Levitical ones, but it is one that was set up during the time of Esther. And the premise of is that the fact that the, the Jews were going to be completely wiped out. Haman was going to eliminate all the Jews from all the earth. I mean, they were going to be completely done. And so they were able to, God intervening in all of that, managed to save the Jewish people, all right, using Mordecai and using Esther as well as others. But the thing that we got to understand is it wasn't just in that area. It was the entire Persian kingdom, which was massive, which included present-day Jerusalem, where Ezra and Nehemiah were currently building the temple. I mean, this is what's going on during that time frame. Why is that so significant? Because that temple had to be there in order for Jesus to come because they had to be making sacrifices. This had to happen. The Jewish people have to exist for the Messiah to come. If there is no Jewish population, there can't be no Messiah because he comes from the line of David. We have watched. You watch through Old Testament and the New Testament how many times that the enemy has tried to foil the plan of God by making it impossible for the Messiah to come. Then, after the Messiah is here, we have seen that happen again. World War II, right? Six million Jews are killed. Adolf Hitler was attempting to wipe out the entire population of the Jews to cleanse the race, if you will. We've seen this thing happen in our own lifetime. You see it in the book of Esther. All right, and, and I talked about Amalek and, and, and Haman being an Agagite who comes from the Amalekites, who comes from Esau, and how that lineage of hate for the Jewish people has gone all the way through time. And what I'm trying to show is that I believe that the Antichrist will be of that same spirit, in fact that he is going to have a hatred for the Jews, although they won't recognize it. With all of that in mind, today we're going to get into the festival of Hanukkah. Okay? I think we've got this up here. I want to show you how it's spelled, okay? That's how it's spelled. You know what? We don't spell it with the C. You know why? Because we have no sound in the English language. It requires a lot of phlegm, all right? So we drop the C. So it's actually said Chanukah is how you say it. So let's say that together just for the fun of it. Ready? One, two, three. Chanukah, right? It hurts a little, all right? It's like when you go to like a a Spanish-speaking country, they roll their R's right i attempted to do that once and i slobbered all over the poor gentleman in front of me it did not i can't do it it's just not a gift that i have but hanukkah as we call it now what we're going to do today just so you guys know where we're going i want to show you i want to show you what is going on in the festival how they celebrate it so you got an understanding of that then we're going to get into the history of it and you're going to pick up on a pattern of what's going on and why they're celebrating because that's important then next week I'm going to show you how prophetic in nature this is. Because what many people believe that Hanukkah is just the Jewish version of Christmas. It is not. Okay? Not even close. This, again, is a celebration of the existence of the Jewish people. So let's get into this. First of all, the name Hanukkah is a word in Hebrew that means dedication. All right? That's what Hanukkah is. It's the feast of dedication. That's maybe how you've heard it. Because when they rededicated the temple, after the, uh, they were trying to be wiped out again, that they, they Hanukkahed it, if you will. Because that's what that word means, is that it's dedication. The other name that you may be more familiar with, at least not the Hebrew one, but what it means is Hag Orim, H-A-G-H-A-O-R-I-M, which means the Feast of Lights or the Festival of Lights. And that is likely the name that you have heard it from is the Festival of Lights Now, those of you that, that grew up in the 90s and watched Saturday Night Live, Adam Sandler wrote a song about this. We're not going to play that song because it's Adam Sandler, and for crying out loud, we're in church, but we, we can do better than that. But go on YouTube if you want to hear But he talks about the Festival of Lights. He's a Jewish man. And so the name of this, the Festival of Lights, is really found in the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. He was in the early 100s. He was just past the time of Christ, but he probably existed then. This name here is based on a legend, and the legend goes like this, is that when they were rededicating the temple, they, in order to have the lights lit, they had to have a special kind of oil that they would keep in there, and the, and the, the uh, priests would go in every day, and they were refilling this and all of that, in order, but the problem is they had one day's worth of oil. And so it took eight days for them to make more. Whatever that process was, was an eight-day process. And so they decided to light up the, the, the candles anyway, and it lasted the entire eight days. Now, there is nothing historical here about that. There's no evidence of this anywhere. This is somewhat of a legend. It, it, it literally comes from a, a more later time in which uh, Jewish writings, like hundreds of years later, expounds upon this. Now, the Jewish people today completely believe this happened. And maybe it did. I'm not saying that it didn't. There is just no evidence of it anywhere. It's more of a legend. It's kind of like the legend when we talk about the high priest on the day of atonement would go into the most holy place and they would tie a rope around his leg and he'd have bells. And if they stopped hearing the bells ringing, that they would pull him out by the rope. There's no real evidence of it, but it's a, a, it's folklore that has lasted uh, for a very, very long time. So Now when it comes to the story of where Hanukkah comes from, it comes out of the book of Maccabees. Now Maccabees is not a canonical book, it's not a part of our Bible, it's part of what they call the Apocrypha, but they are historical and it is laying down a history of what's happening here. So it comes to the Maccabean revolt. So in 1st and 2nd Maccabees where you'll, you'll see this thing, it has no mention of that whole oil thing, there's no mention in it at all. So what happens is that when they're celebrating this feast is that you'll have these Hanukkah lights that are lit. In fact, I've got a picture of the menorah here. I know you've seen these before, but you'll notice that there are nine candles. The top candle there is called the shamash which is just kind of the helper candle. That is the candle that they use to light each one of these. So this year, Hanukkah is going to begin on December 12th. It always falls in the month of Kislev, which is the last month in their calendar. And it... uh 12, But it's usually either end of November or early part of December when it starts. And then it, of course, goes for a day. So I'm going to tell you guys some of the stuff that they do. So there are special Shabbat requirements for these types of things. They do not light a candle specifically on Shabbat, which would be their Sabbath. So both men and women are obligated to light the menorah. And so anybody in the household, children, whatever, they are all participating. This is a family event. All right, so this is kind of a big deal. If they're, they talk about that if they're students living, you know, somewhere else and they're in a dorm, they're to put that menorah in the window and light it and follow it each day. So they usually put it in a doorway or a window because they want people to see it. They're, they're celebrating. It's a public thoroughfare and they've got requirements of this. The heights of the windowsills must be and how big the room must be. I mean, they got a whole bunch of stuff and maybe that's so they don't actually light the place on fire. I don't know. But when these lights are lit and these candles that they use, it has to be something of a wick that is either made from olive oil or paraffin candles can be used, but preferably olive oil candle or a beeswax candle, okay? So they don't want that scented stuff that you buy from Yankee Candle, preferably, but pretty much they'll do whatever you want. They don't use gas lights, they don't use electric lights, okay? That is forbidden. Now, does that mean that people don't do that? Of course not, because people do whatever they want but they have to have the fuel. This candle has to be able to be lit for 30 minutes. It has to last that long. It cannot be shorter or it doesn't count. Therefore, they sell these certain kind of candles that last approximately that long, and then it will melt down. They start it, they'll light it about 30 minutes after nightfall, depending on the day, and I'll explain that more in a minute. So, Each of these eight days, they have all these communities of people that come together, and they always light it just after sunset, and it runs for about 30 minutes. Now, during Shabbat, which is the Saturday, the Friday night at nightfall to the Saturday night at nightfall is Shabbat. It's a special day in which they do no work. They do not light the fire on Shabbat, okay? So what they do is just before nightfall on that Friday evening, they will light it and about, and they say literally 18 minutes before sundown is what they're supposed to do. And they'll take a a bigger candle or add more oil to it, whatever they got to do to make it light for the 30 minutes after sundown on that day, because they won't light it on Shabbat. Why don't they do that? Because that could be constituted as work. Remember the rules of the Sabbath. You can do no work, and you can do nothing that causes somebody else to work. Now, to us, that sounds crazy. Today, for the most part, it's just a day off. That's how it's looked at. I mean, if you look on the Sabbath in Israel, the beaches are full. Okay, it's supposed to be a day of worship, not just a day off. But, I mean, if you've ever been to Israel, and I've talked about this before, you have to remember that they have, uh, on on Shabbat, their elevators stop on every floor. That way, it doesn't cause work to push the button. Now, I'm not sure how it's not work to walk onto the elevator, but... That's neither here nor there. It sure beats the stairs, that's for sure. So, I mean, it's, it's a very, very big deal. Now, as they get in there on the first night, there are three blessings that they pray. The first night, they're going to pray all three. On the nights after that, they're going to pray, uh, pray the, next, or the first two. So, I've got these up here for you. It says, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to light the Hanukkah light. I'm not going to do that flimmy thing because it hurts a little. Uh, And that's how they say it in Hebrew. If anybody would like to attempt to read that, you are more than welcome. I'll give you a microphone and let you do it. I'm not going to even butcher that. And then the second one they read is this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who performed miracles for our forefathers in those days at this time. What are they talking about? The stuff we're going to get into in a minute. And then the third one that they pray is, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has granted us life, sustained us, and enabled us to reach this occasion. They pray all three of these the first night, and then after that, they pray the next two. But this is a celebration of their existence. There are several songs that are sang uh, during this time. Um, they do not just go up and light the candle. The shamash, that middle candle, is the one they light, and then that candle is used to light the next one. So it is not a, just a time. Uh, they don't just walk up there with a, a lighter. Okay, They actually have a reason that they do these things. Now... At this time, they'll add a what's called an Al-Hanisim liturgy. Do I have that up there by chance? I don't know if I put that up. Do you see anything weird that's very long? I might have, might not have. I must... Okay, yes, this is what they, they'll sing this, or they'll say this one. We kindle these lights to commemorate the saving acts, miracles, and wonders which you have performed for our forefathers in those days at this time through your holy priest. Throughout the eight days of Hanukkah, these lights are sacred, and we are not permitted to make use of them, but only to look at them in order to offer thanks and praise to your great name for your miracles, for your wonders, and for your salvation. So what are they talking about here? They cannot use this light to read at all. They will get no benefit from this light. Now, that may sound kind of crazy, but literally, they, uh, this light is to the glory of God showing to the world. This is not for them to take from it. They are celebrating their existence. So they will pray that, and then they will also uh, pray the halal prayer, which is Psalm 113 through 118. And they will recite that each and every night. And then, of course, they read their Torah portions. And so it's, during this time, it's customary to be uh, very charitable. On Fridays, they'll give a double portion of what they would normally do because they're not going to give on the Shabbat. Uh, They've got certain kinds of foods that they do. And then they also give their children money. It's called a gelt. And so it's, it's to celebrate the happiness and the festivities with the kids. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. This is not their version of Christmas. And I want to make that very clear that they are celebrating a historical event. Christmas, we're celebrating the birth of Christ, most definitely a historical event. Now, how we celebrate it in America, not really so much. It was with Santa Claus and trees and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line here is they are literally celebrating their existence. And this means a lot to them, that the Orthodox Jews celebrate this in a very orthodox manner to the letter of the law. But even in, in Jerusalem, as an example, where 10% of them are really um, what you would consider orthodox, the rest of them would be kind of agnostic, atheists. They don't necessarily even believe in God. They still do this. They still go through the rituals and they do, still celebrate this. So it is something, in a way, it is their Christmas because it's that time of year. But in, in a true sense, it's really not. Because where we say this is about family, for them, this is about existence, the right to live. It's kind of a big deal, so let's get into the historical background of this because I want to show you guys uh, what is happening here. So this all goes back to the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a, a incredible warrior. He conquered land. Um, he conquered Israel. It, it, part of the eventually will be part of the entire Greek Empire, but. After he died, in fact, I think I've got a map of this. Let's look at this here real quick to show you how big this thing is. This, is his, this shows his travel, but all of this here is kind of hard to see, but this kind of off-colored green part here, that is all, even into Egypt, that is all part of his conquering and his kingdom. It's a big, big, massive thing. Now, here, over here, uh, is Jerusalem. Okay, so he had taken over that territory. I mean, he's called Alexander the Great for a reason. And so what happens is that when he dies, this kingdom gets divided into four kingdoms. I think I've got a map of this as well. Yes. And this is, this is a photocopy out of an old book. Um, but you can see it gets, it gets split up a little bit. And here's Jerusalem and Egypt. And it gets split into four different sections. Now, two of these kingdoms specifically affect Israel, Syria and Egypt. So you've got what well, was, cause I think, the Seleucid. And the Ptolemies. I think that's correct. So these areas here, because Syria is just right up in this range. And so down here. And those two are going to go to bat. And and literally what happens is that Jerusalem becomes kind of a football that gets kicked back and forth. Because at one point they're under the the reign of Egypt, and at another point they're under the the reign of the Syrians. So it just depends. Um, But basically they'd been under Egyptian control. 198 BC, it fell to under Syrian control, so it goes back and forth. Now What happens with Alexander the Great is he when he took over, he did not force them to assimilate. He would allow them to still be Jewish. You still hold your customs. You still keep your feast days. You do whatever you want as long as you obey the law. You see it similarly in a Roman rule, which is going to happen in the 60 B.C. range, somewhere in that range, which is the time of Christ. Uh, when when he's on the earth, so they're under Roman rule there. So just prior to that, they weren't. They were underneath the power of, of Alexander the Great's kingdom. But what happens here is that after he is gone, that these Hellenistic Jews, and we see these guys in the New Testament, but they adopt this Greek culture. And they wanted to be, to, to more assimilate. And so they were kind of enforcing this on the Jews. And many Jews would fall for this idea of this, this Hellenistic idea where they, they should be um, enforcing this Greek culture. And so what happens is they build a temple um, to, to false gods, you know, Zeus and Jupiter and all these guys. Um, and then they would begin to get into the Greek games. The, they built a Colosseum near Jerusalem, which they would do, it's kind of where our Olympics come from, But they would do these Greek games. And so what would happen is, and if you've not read your history books, but they would play these games in the nude. So they're throwing the discus and all of that. The problem is, is with the Jewish man, is that when he was in the nude, in order to be underneath the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant, he had to be circumcised. So they would take steps to hide their circumcision marks so that they looked like everybody else talks about how even the priests, the ones that were serving in the temple during this time, would leave the temple, go strip down, uh, play part in the games, throw the discus, do whatever that they were going to do, and then they would go back and start sacrificing again. This concept is an abomination to the Lord, because what were the Jewish people supposed to do? They were supposed to be separated. They were not supposed to assimilate. They were who they were. Now, all of these things, as you see through time, have something to do with some sort of a judgment. So here you get an idea of what's going on. Now, it's going to get bad under a leader named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus, or Antiochus, I should say, Antiochus IV. There was four of them. They each ruled at a different time. But Antiochus Epiphanes is from 175 to 164 BC. Now, he was called Antiochus IV. He took on the name Epiphanes on himself. And Epiphanes means the manifest God, because he believed himself to be just that. All right? That's kind of a picture of him. That's a coin that was found. Um, He's pretty proud of himself. Now, the Jews didn't call him Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes. E-P-I-M-A-N-E-S. And the reason they called him that is because that meant Antiochus the madman. They did not respect this guy. They did not like him. Now, this guy, being as arrogant as he was, now, he was somewhat underneath the Roman thumb because the guy that was in charge of the area before him had gone up to China to take over parts of Greece and Rome kind of put a stop to that. And therefore, they were kind of under tribute to Rome. They were paying Rome a bunch of money to leave them alone and had taken some of the major cities from them even at this point. And so because of the previous leader, Antiochus IV is in the same boat. Now, he wakes up one day and says, you know what? I'm going to take the land of Egypt over there. He's going to go, So he's going to go through Jerusalem because that was his territory. And he was going to go down there and he's going to take this Egyptian uh, area. And you're gonna, we're going to read about this here in a minute. But basically is that he does it two different times. And the last time, basically, Rome said, no, you're not going to do this anymore. Back off, leave it alone. You know, they're, they're trying to keep some peace uh, in the area. And so he's ticked off, and he goes back. And then he's going to force the Jews to give up all of their uh, customs, all of the things. They've made it illegal to circumcise anybody anymore. Um, he, he's going to sacrifice a pig on the altar inside the temple. and He's going to set up a, a throne to Zeus or also known as Jupiter. So he's going to force them into false religion. And we're going to read more detail about this, but which is going to lead to the Maccabean Revolt, and I'll explain that in a minute, which is what leads to Hanukkah. So that's the background of the area that's going on. Now I want to read this out of 1 Maccabees chapter 1. Now remember, as I said before, this is not a canonical book. This is a book that was written, it's historical. There's a lot of information in here, so don't let it freak you out when we start reading this stuff, um, because it is important to understand. But there are four things that we uh, uh, want to get in here. So first Maccabees chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, After Alexander, son of Philip, this is Alexander the Great, the Macedonian, who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated king Darius of the Persian and the Medes. He succeeded him as king. He had previously become the king of Greece. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. And when the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. He gathered a very strong army and ruled over countries, nations, and princes, and they became tributary to him. After this, he fell sick and perceived that he was dying. So he summoned his most honored officers who had been brought up with him from youth and divided the kingdom among them while he was still alive. And there was four of them. That's what I was talking about earlier. After Alexander had reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule, each in his own place. They all put on crowns after his death, and so did their descendants after, after them for many years. And they caused many evils on the earth. So let's look at this map again, just to get an idea of what this was. Is this was the territory. So it's big. And so he had gone through and he had conquered all these. I mean, he's, again, called Alexander the Great for a reason. Then they divided into those four kingdoms and those four territories. At his, he's getting ready to die. This was his decision. So, this map is not to scale, obviously, but it gives you an idea. They take that entire kingdom, and now it's underneath four rulers. That's what we've just read about. Now, in verse 10, it says, "...from them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome. He began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel." many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us, for since we separated from them, many disasters had come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, who authorized them to observe the ordinance of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision, and abandoned the holy covenant, they joined with the Gentiles, and sold themselves to do evil." I talked about this a little bit, but they removed the sign of the covenant. Remember, what was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant? It was circumcision. And so when they, the reason they would do that is because they were going to compete in these games. But this all starts with a few people in the Jewish kingdom that ruled up and said, hey, why don't we just go along and get along with these guys? You know, we'll just do this. We'll sign a treaty with them. We'll act like the Gentiles. In this case, we're dealing with this Greek mindset. What is the problem with this? is that every time this has happened in history, this is a a breaking of that Mosaic Covenant, judgment befalls him every single time. Anything you've read in the Old Testament, The Jews are doing well, they start to break God's covenant, God says judgment on them, and then they're like, God, we're so sorry, we'll be good. And then, of course, he brings mercy to them once again. Here's another one of those examples. The reason the book of Esther is written is they are underneath the Persian rule because they broke God's covenant. They didn't keep the land Sabbath, therefore they were conquered. You see this time and time again. Why are they doing this? Because it is a lot easier to be just like everyone else and follow what is being socially accepted in the day. It is no different today. How much easier is it as a born-again believer to just bypass the Bible and just buy into what is socially acceptable? It is much easier. Much easier. But it is not right. We have to stand on truth. Every one of the 12 apostles laid down their life willingly because of the word of God and what Jesus had done. They died for it. Here we just don't get liked if we go too far with this. And yet we still have believers that, that, that just want to follow the trends of society. As you're going to see, this never ends well. You can see it in American history. You can see it in the history of every single culture around the world. When we bypass the word of God and we no longer live by a biblical worldview, bad things begin to happen. All right. Let's get into verse 16. When Antiochus saw that his kingdom was established, he determined to become king of the land of Egypt, in order that he might reign over both kingdoms. So he invaded Egypt with a strong force, with chariots and elephants and cavalry with a large fleet. He engaged King Ptolemy of Egypt in battle, and Ptolemy turned and fled before him, and many were wounded and fell, and they captured and fortified the cities in the land of Egypt, and he plundered the land of Egypt. Now this is being very nice to him, but as you read in other parts of history books, it doesn't go as well as he hoped it would. Yes, he had some success there, because he had a lot more resources, he had a lot bigger kingdom, but eventually Rome is going to put it into this and he is going to go back. He's still got some control there, but he bas- they basically made him quit fighting with these people. Verse 20, after subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year. He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the lights and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread bread of presents, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, this curtain, the crowns, and the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures, and he found, taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned, young women and Became faint, And beauty of the women faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for his inhabitants. And all the, the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. On his way back, he goes into Jerusalem and he strips the temple of everything. There's a lot of gold and a lot of silver. What this doesn't tell you is the reason he did this is he's trying to pay off the debt to Rome so that he can get out from under the Roman tribute. That's what he's attempting to do. Therefore, he strips the temple. You see this several times in the Old Testament. They always take everything, all the gold. And there was a lot, a lot of gold. Now, because of this, he's killing these people. He's doing a lot of bad things. Of course, the Israelites are in uh, mourning. This is a time of sadness, not a time of gladness, that even though they wanted to assimilate with the Greek culture, many of them did, several did not. And even though they wanted to do that, that temple still meant something to them. And now it is no longer the same. But watch what happens next in verse 29. Two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, which means basically kind of like paying taxes. And he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Now watch this. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city dealt a severe blow and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down his houses and its surrounding walls. They took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. Then they fortified the city of David with a great strong wall and strong towers, and it became their citadel." They stationed there a sinful people, men who were renegades. These strengthened their position. They stored up arms and food, and collecting the spoils of Jerusalem, they stored them there and became a great menace. For the citadel became an ambush against the sanctuary of evil, of an evil adversary of Israel at all times. On every side of the sanctuary they shed innocent blood, and they even defiled the sanctuary. Because of them, the residents of Jerusalem fled. She became a dwelling of strangers. She became strange to her offspring, and her children forsook her. Her sanctuary became debilitating. Desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into a reproach, her honor into contempt, her dishonor now great, uh, now grew as great as her glory, and her exaltation was turned into mourning. A lot going on here, but let watch this. Now, what I'm trying to get to, where we're going with this, is that this Hanukkah thing is a picture of the end-time events. Alright? So now thinking about that, we know what's going to happen, right? The, there's going to be an Antichrist that rises up. He's going to create a peace treaty in the Middle East. There'll be peace in the Middle East for three and a half years. And then he is going to go and plant himself in that temple. The abomination of desolation is going to happen. And then it's going to be all chaos from that point on. Now, look what just happened. You've got the enemy of the Jewish people comes and said in verse 30 that he spoke peaceable words to them. And they believed him. Does that sound similar to what you think in the end times? Yes, it does. He's going to speak peaceful words and they're going to buy into it. And they believed him. But then suddenly he fell upon the city and dealt with a severe blow and destroyed many people of Israel. You've seen the picture that's kind of being laid out. We'll talk about that more next week. But I want you guys paying attention to this. And what happens is that everything good. Remember, all of these feasts are a celebration of something that God had done. is now turned into mourning. It is flipping it on its head. Now, ultimately, we know that all of this is going to happen out of the book. Hosea tells us this is that so that the Jewish people will repent and accept their Messiah who has already come. We see this picture again. Going on right here, we saw it at the time of Esther. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it here in a time that is this 400-year gap, uh, what they call the silent period between the end of the Old Testament and the writings of Matthew and the New Testament. We see this again, and guess what? We saw it one time in World War II, and it'll certainly happen at least one more time, if not more than that, because we don't know exactly when Jesus is going to return. But all of this should sound very familiar if you've ever studied End Times. That's the point I'm trying to make. Just keep that in the back of your mind as we go forward here because this is a time of great mourning for the Jewish people. Verse 41. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people. Again, think in times and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols, and they profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbath and the festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, To sacrifice swine and other unclean animals and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, And whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. In such words he wrote to his whole kingdom. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now, on the fifteenth days of Chislev... Kislev is how we say it. It's probably that again, but I'm not going to go there. In the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. This is the sacrifice, the abomination of desolation, the sacrificing of a pig. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel. Again, those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and washed And their families of those who circumcised this, And they hung the infants from the mother's necks. But many in Israel stood firm, and they resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. Man, there's a lot going on. I mean, and we've talked about this, but they, they've changed the practice. One, is that after the second failed campaign in Egypt, he couldn't do it. Then he slaughters the Jews. The third thing that he does is he makes this decree and he forbids them from practicing Judaism. The, the things of the covenant that they had to do, the dietary laws, the Sabbaths, the sacrifices, all these things that they were required to do, and of course, circumcision is now against um, the law. And what does he do? He burns all the books of the law, the scrolls. Why does he do that? Because then they will have nothing to look back at. They can't go and read it. Remember what happened with King Josiah. Uh, Judah was a wicked place at this point. Josiah the king takes over at eight years old. He finds a Torah scroll and realizes they are not practicing the things they should be. And so he's considered a reformer because of what he did. After this, Antiochus puts this persecution on everybody who disobeyed him. Now, I said, if a child was circumcised, that child was killed and hung around the mother's neck. And then they will kill the mother. This is horrible stuff, guys. This is not, hey, they unfriended me on Facebook because I'm a Christian. No, I mean, we're talking some serious stuff. They forced the rabbis to eat pork, which is negative. Remember, they weren't supposed to do that. It was an unclean animal. And many of the rabbis would choose death over even eating this pork. There's a story of this Rabbi Eliezer who basically at age 90, rather than disobey the Mosaic law, he killed himself. He jumped off of a building. He refused to do it. There's several stories about this. There's a story about Hannah and her seven sons, that all the sons were killed, and it was very torturous and slow death, and eventually she herself was killed, and she did the same thing. Jumped off a building rather than worship a pagan idol. These people were committed to the things of God. This is what's going to lead to the Maccabean Revolt because the last straw is what they call the abomination of desolation where they sacrifice a pig on the altar and a statue is erected of Jupiter, who is Zeus, in the temple. So there's a lot of stuff that are going on. now. It's bad. But does all of this sound a little familiar to something that happened in our lifetime? Absolutely. Read the stories of World War II and what happened with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. It was bad. And they did very much the same thing. Now, the Jews don't have a temple and haven't had a temple since 70 AD. So there wasn't that aspect of it. But they forbid them to live in a way uh, that allowed them to practice their customs, certainly. And anybody who tried that, they would kill. In fact, even if you didn't try it, they were going to kill you just because you were Jewish. This is what I said leads to the Maccabean revolt. And the thing, the Maccabee was not a last name. It is a Hebrew name that is given to really just one of the, the sons here. And we'll get into this because there were five of them. But it means ha- the hammer or hammering away is what it means. It goes to a guy named Judah. Because basically what he does is he can, they start this battle and they fight the Syrians and he does not quit until he is victorious. So the, the, the whole thing starts in this uh, northwest of Jerusalem, a little town called Modin. I think I've got a, a map of this here. Modin is right here. You can't hardly see it, but it's right there. Okay, And so this is where the battle is going to start. Now, as I said, this is done by uh, uh, an elderly priest named Mattathias. And he lived there, and basically they wanted him to sacrifice to these foreign gods. And he absolutely refused to. They wanted him to sacrifice a pig. And many of the, um, there was one priest that was willing to do it. He was a Hellenizer. He said, hey, I'll do it, no big deal. And Manateus kills the guy because he does not want that that temple to be um, ruined, essentially. So you see this map here. And this talks about the Maccabean revolt. You can hardly see it, but it's got Mattathias and then his son, Judas, Jonathan, all this stuff that is going on. The family lineage that's going on here. And let me show you this. Go to the next one. This is Mattathias, And these are the five sons. Now, Judas here is the one that we know. And he is the Maccabee. He's the one that we hear that you've, you've heard about, even though you don't know you've heard about because he is the one that really goes in there and pounds it. And we're going to read about him in just a minute. But he had, Mattathias had five sons and they came from the house of Hasmon. And so you'll see about these things guys called Hasmonians. And that was these guys. These guys are the ones that lead the revolt and eventually are going to succeed and allow the Jews to uh, get back in right standing. All right. So we're going to jump over to 1st Maccabees chapter 2. And I'm going to read about this guy Mattathias. All right. Starting in verse 49, it says, Now the days drew near for Mattathias to die, and he said to his sons... Arrogance and scorn have now become strong. It is a time of ruin and furious anger. Now, my children, show zeal for the law and give your lives for the covenant of our ancestors. Remember the deeds of the ancestors, which they did in their generations, and you will receive great honor and an everlasting name. Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Joseph, in the time of his distress, kept the commandment and became lord of Egypt. Phineas, our ancestor, because he was deeply zealous, received the covenant of everlasting priesthood. Joshua, because he fulfilled the command, became a judge in Israel. Caleb, because he testified in the assembly, received an inheritance in the land. David, because he was merciful, inherited the throne of the kingdom forever. Elijah, because of great zeal for the law, was taken up into heaven. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael believed and were saved from the flame. Who are those three? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are their Hebrew names. The other ones are their Babylonian names. Verse 60, Daniel, because of his innocence, was delivered from the mouth of the lions, and so observed from generation to generation that none of those who put their trust in him will lack strength. Do not fear the words of the sinners, for for their splendor will turn into dung and worms. Today they will be exalted, but tomorrow they will not be found, because they will have returned to the dust, and their plans will have perished. My children, be courageous and grow strong in the law, for by it you will gain honor." Here is your brother Simeon, who I know is wise in counsel. Always listen to him. He shall be your father. Judas Maccabeus has been a mighty warrior from his youth. He shall command the army for you and fight the battle against the peoples. You shall rally around you all who observe the law and avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. Then he blessed them and was gathered to his ancestors. He died in the 146th year and was buried in the tomb of his ancestors in Modin. And all Israel mourned for him with great lamentation. I mean, this is the pep talk of all pep talk. He tells them to stand strong, that to follow and obey the law. And he goes through their history with Abraham and Joseph and Daniel and all of these guys in the face of all the negative that was going on. They still stood faithful to the things of God. Do not forsake them. You see that reiterated in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews talks about the same thing. Was not Abraham found faithful in that he obeyed God? He's telling these guys the same thing. He's telling them to get ready. It's going to get ugly. It's going to be hard. But whatever you do, you stand faithful and your name will be great. Because the plan to foil God's plan will always fall short. These people that seem like they're great today will be brought down and their plan will be nothing but dust, as will they. So follow the things of God. And then he gives a little bit of direction. He says, Simeon, you're in charge, but Judas, you go and fight. And he he does that. He does just that. He goes out and fight. And he will go and he will win. And he'll go from city to city. And they battle and they kill the Syrians. All these people that were going against the people of God. They are successful. Which brings us to what Hanukkah is. Is the rededication of the temple. So we're jumping ahead. We're not going to get in all the battle scenes and where they went and all that. Because that really doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is the principle behind here. And in 2 Maccabees chapter 10... Starting in verse 1, it gives us this story. It says, Now Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city. This is referring to Jerusalem. They tore down the altars that had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. Then, striking fire out of Flint, they offered sacrifice. After a lapse of two years, they had offered incense and lighted lamps, and set out the bread of presence. So they're refilling the temple. When they had done this, they fell prostrate and implored the Lord that they might never again fall into such misfortune, but that if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined by him with forbearance, and not by being handed over to the blasphemous and barbarous nations. It happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned, By the foreigners that the purification of the sanctuary took place. That is on the 25th day of the same month, which is Kislev. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the Festival of Booths. Remembering how not long before during the... Uh, during the Festival of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals, therefore carrying ivy wreath wands and beautiful branches and also fawns of palm. They offered hymns and thanksgiving to him and had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. This is talking about the rededication of the temple. They go in... They clean everything out. They tear down the altars and they build a new one. They want nothing in there. They cleanse it. How do they cleanse it? Cleanse with blood. It has to be done through sacrifice. So the old altar had been desecrated because they'd had pigs and other unclean things on there, it was demolished, and they built this new one. They made new vessels. Remember, they'd all been stripped out, all the gold was taken. They built a lamp stand, the lampstand, the, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, they hung new curtains. There's other parts that talk about this. The rededication of this took place on the exact same date that it was dec- or desecrated the 25th of Kislev in 167 BC is when it was taken, it was rededicated on the exact same day in 164 B.C. And they are inaugurating a brand new feast. So the feast lasts for eight days. Why does it do that? Because it is copying the Feast of Tabernacles, which is an eight-day celebration. It goes back to when King Solomon dedicated the first temple. They observed that dedication for eight days because they were copying the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you're wondering why it's an eight-day celebration, now you know. So when they had rededicated the temple, they followed the exact example that Solomon had laid out. The Feast of Tabernacles is always a time of rejoicing and the kindling of these lampstands and all these other things. So, therefore, when they did this, they followed that exact same process. And it's amazing that the exact same day of which it was taken is the exact same day that they rededicated. And that's important. Now, this is a lot of information, and I, I understand that. But I want, because next week, I want to get into the prophetic nature of it. Because what if I told you that everything that I just read you was prophesied by Daniel 400 years before this event, to the letter. And what's so amazing about it is that people who study the Bible do not believe that the book of Daniel was written when Daniel was alive because of its extreme accuracy to this very event. It's, it's, it's powerful when you see that. That not only was it prophetic in nature what happened here, but it's also prophetic in nature of what's going to happen. This feast means a lot to them. We take for granted what Hanukkah means to them. And many of them today may not even understand what it means to them, but it's important. And I want to read you a story because remember, this is World War II. Think about World War II. We watched this very kind of thing happen in our own lifetime. And during World War II, when they were in um, these concentration camps, I'm going to read you a story about how they celebrated Hanukkah during this time. All right, so this is is from a, a book, and there are several of these like this, but this is a book that I read. It says, one of the items I smuggled out of Auschwitz when the Nazis moved into the camp number eight, a quarantine camp for those suspected of carrying typhus, was my spoon. So he had a spoon. It wasn't much, but it was mine. And it would come to play an important role in my Jewish life and in those of some of the 500 or so other prisoners that were there. There were no labor details in this new camp, but we inmates were ordered to help in its construction, which was still underway. Having some experience in the Ludd's ghetto as a mechanic, I helped the electrical technician install the camp's lighting. With my new access to tools, I brought my spoon to work and filed down its handle, making it into a sharp knife. Now I could use it both to eat my soup and to cut my bread. This was useful because we would often receive one chunk of bread to divide among two or three people, and without a knife, it was difficult to apportion the bread fairly. Now, I was regularly called upon to use my spoon knife to help avoid disputes and maintain relative peace among the prisoners. When winter came, though my spoon became involved in an additional mitzvah, by then we had been transferred to Camp Number 4 in Coffering. A camp more similar to Auschwitz in its daily ordeals. Despite the horrendous hardship we suffered daily, however, we tried whenever possible to remember to do a mitzvah and to maintain a self-image as God-fearing Jews despite all the dangers that involved. Having always kept mental track of the calendar, I knew when Hanukkah had arrived. During a few minutes rest break, a group of inma- inmates and I began to reminisce about how, back home before the war, our fathers would light their menorahs with such fervor and joy. We remembered how we could never seem to get our fill of watching the flames sparkling like stars, how we basked in the warm, special glow, and how they seemed to imbue us with special sanctity. And then we got to thinking about how the original origins of Hanukkah, about the war of the Hasmoneans against their Greek tormentors who were intent on erasing Judaism from Jewish hearts. We, recall, we recalled the great heroism of the Jews at the time who risked their lives in order to keep the Sabbath, practice circumcision and study Torah. And we remembered how God helped them resist and rout their enemy, enabling the Jews to freely observe the Torah and Mitzvot once again. And then we looked around ourselves. Here we were in a camp where our lives were constantly in danger, where we were considered subhuman, and where it was virtually impossible to observe the most basic practices of Judaism. How happy we would be, we mused, if only we could light Hanukkah candles. While we talked and dreamed, we were only suddenly struck as if at once by the same resolution. We simply must discover a way of doing the seasonal mitzvah. One fellow offered a small bit of margarine he had saved from his daily ration. That could serve as our oil. and wicks, we began to unravel threads from our uniforms. What, though, could be our menorah? I took out my spoon, and within moments, we were lighting the Hanukkah candle, reciting the blessings. We all stood around the entrance, transfixed, each immersed in our own thoughts of hanukkah gone by, of latkes and dreidels and Hanukkah gelt we'd received as children. Our unusual Hanukkah menorah kindled in us a glimmer of hope as we recited the blessing about the miracles of God have performed our forefathers in those days, but also at this time we well understood that only the only thing that could save us would be a miracle, a great miracle like the one hinted at one of the dreidel's acrostics. They are in a, an eternal torment here. It is absolutely crazy, and the only thing they can think of is the Hanukkah. Of how it was a promise to them of, of a time where the Jews were attempting to be wiped out and yet they weren't. And so they were hanging on to that promise that there would always be a remnant. There's another story of a similar situation. Again with they spoon, but this time they, all they had was some shoe polishing oil or whatever you want to call that. They used that to light it in shoelaces. And they want, and his, he he gave those three prayers, and, and the third prayer, which is talking about the goodness of God, he said, God, and we know you will keep us and sustain us during this. And one of the guys said, like, how can you even pray that when all around us people are dying every single day? But he said, you know what? We've got to trust the Father or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that He will once again keep a remnant of our people around. These are promises. This is not just a celebration of a a joyous time at Christmas. This is a celebration of what was a horrible time in Jewish history. And yet, through the hand of God, they survived. So there's a lot that's going on here. We take for granted because we don't understand it. But the thing that I want you guys to see more than anything else, and you'll begin to see it next week, is that how uh, prophetic all of this is. Everything that happened was prophesied 400 years beforehand before the, the whole time of, of the Hasmoneans, and then how does that have a picture for the end times? Because we've seen it once in our lifetime, and I think we're going to see it again.